Well, growing up, like many little boys, I played baseball. Baseball was kind of my thing. I took it very seriously. A couple times after letting up a few runs on the mound, I may or may not have cried while standing on the mound. Um, but we can talk about that later. However, um, when I was 13, I learned to play the guitar. And so when high school came, I put the guitar down, or the baseball bat down and picked up the guitar. Um, but when I was 14, my, also, my dad got remarried. And uh, my stepbrother just so happened to be a football player. He actually ended up being the um, high school quarterback for, for my high school. And I knew nothing about football before my dad got married. But living with him, obviously, I learned the game very quickly and ended up lo loving the game of football. Um, even to this day, football is my sport of choice. Go Bucks! I'll probably be the only person you hear say that within a 100-mile radius of here. Um, but I stick to it. Um, and maybe when I was about 14 or 15, um, I had what medically may be referred to as a delusion of grandeur. I thought that maybe I'll go be a football player. I mean, my stepbrother's the quarterback. I could be the wide receiver, and I had visions of a slow-motion catch with two to toes down in the end zone, and was envisioning how this would all play out, and this crowd would go wild and be an amazing thing. And so I concocted in my head a uh, vigorous workout regiment where I would run around the neighborhood and I would set up trees as different obstacles that I'd go around and this whole thing. And unbeknownst to everybody else under everybody's radar, I was becoming the most epic football player you could imagine. It's kind of a Rocky Four type scenario going on in my mind if you've seen Rocky Four. Um, and so the day came where this regiment was to begin, unlike anything the world has yet to see. And so I started running and I ran and I ran and I ran. And then I stopped. It may have lasted 20 seconds. <laughs> Maybe 20 seconds, and that is not a joke. Um, and I ended, and that was the end of my illustrious football career. <laughs> Do you know why I stopped running? Because running stinks. <laughs> I hate running. I don't recommend running if I was giving running a Yelp review. It would be one star. And as ridiculous as my attempt at training for football was, I wonder if this is not what often happens to us in the Christian life. We want Jesus to help make our lives easy, and we really like the idea of going to heaven someday, but we forget how difficult the process actually is. We forget that Jesus was actually serious when he told us to count the cost, or as C.S. Lewis said, that the cross comes before the crown. This is exactly what was happening to the Hebrews today. For the great majority of the letter, the author has pleaded with us to consider Jesus primarily from a theological standpoint. He has held up Jesus like this precious gem, and he's shined light into that gem from every possible angle so we can see the intricacies and the spectrum of the gospel. And it's been an amazing journey so far. But today, the writer pleads with us once again to consider Jesus, but not primarily from a theological aspect, but primarily from the ultimate example of endurance. As we have learned so far, the primary struggle that the Hebrews were enduring was incredible pressure from the outside to, to conform, to abandon the gospel. So you might expect that the writer would give them practical tips on how to deal with persecution, but that's decisively what he does not do. Look at what he says in verse 1 of this chapter, and then verse 3. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, so chapter 11, he gave us this hall of fame of heroes of the faith. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin 
which clings so closely. And let us run with the endurance the race that is set before us. And then verse 3, consider him, that is Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. And then catch this, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. The writer draws a straight line from the hostility that they were enduring to the real issue, the thing that they really needed to remember, which primarily was their ongoing struggle with their own personal sin. The writer draws this straight line so that we would remember today as well. And he reminds his hearers that first and foremost, the Christian life is a war against sin. First and foremost, the Christian life is a war against sin. It is not primarily a war against persecution. It's not primarily a war to further a political agenda. First and foremost, the Christian life is our war against our sin. As Christians, it is absolutely essential that we understand what Christianity actually is. Sinclair Ferguson, he's a a current um, amazing Scottish preacher, one of my favorites. He said, actually speaking on this text, there is nothing more important in the Christian life than understanding its first principles. The reason I stopped running so soon is because I never really truly understood what it meant to train, that by definition, training is hard. It's a struggle. That's the point of it. You're beating your body into a, a... a format it was not intended. Well, it was intended, but based on how you, um, you get the point. <laughs> if you're a Christian this morning, here is your story. We all need to understand what Christianity is. So let's walk through this. God created you in his image to be in relationship with him and to reflect his glory. However, we have all sinned because God is perfectly and completely holy. There is no possible way that you could ever be in his presence. You are hopelessly lost in your sin. But God, because of his love for his creation and his passion for his glory, came on a rescue mission in the person of Jesus Christ. He lived a completely sinless life, and then he died on the cross for our sin. That is, he propitiated or perfectly satisfied God's holy wrath against all who would put their faith in Christ. Jesus then rose bodily three days later from the dead, decisively conquering the stronghold of sin and death. You then, through faith alone, believed this. You looked to Christ alone for your salvation. Then, in what is the greatest miracle conceivable, you were, as Hebrews 10, 14 tells us, perfected for all time in that instance. That is to say, you were declared positionally righteous in that moment. This is what we call justification. But look at what the rest of Hebrews 10, 14 says. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Or to say it another way, he made holy those who he is making holy. He made holy those who he is making holy. Do you feel that tension? Because here's the rub. Though we were declared perfectly righteous the moment we trusted in Christ, we still have sin indwelling in us. So the rest of our life on this earth will be spent becoming more and more who we already are. This is sanctification, and this is an incredibly difficult process. It takes constant pressure and continual shaping. Like a master sculptor who is working on a masterpiece, he takes a raw stone and keeps chipping away 
at the rough edges until something beautiful starts to come through. And in the same way, God continues chipping away at our sin until we start to look more and more like his son. We are constantly engaged in this process. It's our primary vocation. As Christians, sanctification is our spiritual vocation for the rest of our lives. And this was what was happening to the Hebrews. They had started off strong and were running well. Remember, these are people who had joyfully initially accepted the plundering of their property. These were people who were thrown into prison. These weren't fair-weather Christians. These were solid believers. But they were becoming battle-weary and were in danger of becoming hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. They needed to be exhorted to endure, to keep running, to keep fighting against sin, to fixate their eyes on Jesus. So here's the question for us this morning. Do you realize that you are at war? Do you realize that you are at war? In my own life, I feel this battle waging more than ever. The enemy hates Christians, and he especially hates young ministers. So there's often a, a target on our backs, especially coming to a new place in a foreign place. I'm often tempted to sin. I'm often tempted to the sin of unbelief or the sin of self-loathing, which is really just another word for pride. So I need this word this morning as much as anybody else. So you can listen to me preach to myself as I preach to you as well. You may have battled a certain sin for years and have gotten to the point of conceding defeat, but I want to exhort you along with the writer of Hebrews this morning. Keep running. Do not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle. Keep fighting. Know that even your desire, no matter how weak it might feel to fight against your sin, is a testimony to the spirits working in you in this moment. This is an incredibly helpful book called Holiness. Uh, it's by a guy named J.C. Ryle. He was a 19th century theologian. And he has a wonderful word about the Christian struggle for their sins. This is a bit of a lengthy uh, quote, but I think it'll be helpful for us. He says, We may take comfort about our souls if we know anything of an inward fight. It is not everything, I am well aware, but it is something. It is the invariable companion of genuine Christian holiness. Do we find in our heart of hearts a spiritual struggle? Do we feel anything of the flesh fighting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that we cannot do the things that we would? Are we conscious of two principles within us contending for the mastery? Do we feel anything of war in our inward man? Well, let us thank God for it. It is a good sign. It is strongly probable evidence of the great work of sanctification. All true saints are soldiers. Anything is better than apathy, stagnation, deadness, and indifference. We are in a better state than many. The most part of so-called Christians have no feeling at all. We are evidently no friends of Satan. Like the kings of this world, he wars not against his own subjects. The very fact that he assaults us should fill our minds with hope. I say again, let us take comfort. The child of God has two great marks about him. He may be known by his inward warfare and by his inward peace. And that's such an encouraging word this morning that if you are struggling, be encouraged. If you were still dead in your sin, there would be no fight. You'd be perfectly content in your sin. But the fact that you feel a struggle, take that as an encouragement of the Spirit's working in your life. And what is more, know that you have not been left on the battlefield alone to wage this war by yourself. If that were the case, our cause would be hopeless. 
But Jesus personally sees to it that we are being sanctified because he has perfected those who are being sanctified. That's what the text says. And Ephesians 5 actually gives us an even clearer picture of this. It says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ loves his bride. When you struggle against sin, know that Jesus is fighting right alongside you because he is committed to his bride wearing white in the final analysis. That's what Revelation, I believe it's 19, tells us. At the bridegroom dinner of the Lamb, his bride is wearing white. And this calls us to an expansive vision of God's love, doesn't it? We need an expansive vision of what God's love is because the Lord disciplines the one that he loves. The word discipline in this text, it's the Greek word which literally means child training. And what is really interesting, between verses 5 and 11, in seven consecutive verses, he uses the word discipline. I don't know if this happens anywhere else in the New Testament. Let's just run down them quickly. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, for the Lord disciplines the one that he loves. It is for discipline that you have to endure. If you are left without discipline, you are illegitimate children and not sons. We have had earthly fathers who have disciplined us. He disciplines us for our good. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. This is meant to be an incredible encouragement to our hearts this morning. The writer is saying, look at how much your father cares for you. He is a good father, so of course he's going to discipline you for his own good. Because so often, if you're like me, we're prone to say, if God really loved me, X wouldn't have happened to me. Or something that really hits home for me right now. How could God possibly allow my grandma, who has spent her life on the mission field, have Alzheimer's now? How could a loving God allow that? Last week, I was in Pennsylvania visiting my family. And Tuesday, this past Tuesday, the morning that I was uh, leaving, I sat with my grandpa for an hour and a half. This is after the rest of the family had already left. And uh, I sat with him for an hour and a half as he fed my grandma breakfast, which consisted of two pieces of bacon and a banana, and maybe a little bit of juice, just constantly coaxing her to, to try to to, to continue to the chew, and she'd fall asleep in between bites, and he would rub her face and, and speak tenderly to her. And this man has spent his whole life in ministry. How could a loving God do this? But here's the reality. God has not abandoned my grandparents. Friends, we must have a bigger vision of what God's love is in our lives. Do not buy into the superficial definition of love that the world peddles. Love is not primarily about being concerned with someone's temporal comfort or safety. Love is being concerned with someone's eternal good. Love is being committed to the eternal well-being of the beloved. Not the temporal well-being, though it does entail that, but not primarily. Primarily, God's in the business of eternal happiness, which oftentimes involves temporal pain, even pain that's hard to understand. In my grandpa's case, maybe God is revealing to him something through this season 
something more of the face of Christ that no amount of years on the mission field would ever have shown him. And watching him has taught me so much. Even sitting there uh, this Tuesday morning watching him feed my nearly comatose grandma, it struck me in a deeper way than I'd ever seen it before. This is how Christ loves his church. While we were utterly helpless, he came and cared for us in our weakness. He provides spiritual food for us when we can't even open our eyes, right? And so I'm watching my grandpa feed, feed my grandma and thinking, this is the picture of the gospel. This is what marriage was designed to be. It's not designed to primarily make us happy. Now, it's hard for being a single guy <clears throat> saying this, but I think Chuck would attest to that and everybody else who's married. Marriage will make you happy, but it's designed to make us holy. It's designed to be a picture to the world of how much Christ loves his church. That's what it's meant to be. And that's why if we go back a bit in Ephesians 5, this is the full verse that Paul says. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. This is what I mean when I say we need an expansive vision of God's love. An expansive vision. One that recognizes that in every situation, God is working together 10,000 things that you may never see until glory. We need an expansive vision, not a superficial vision of what love is, which the world, as I said, peddles to us every day in everything we watch, in every song we listen to. We need to reject that and embrace God's definition of love, which is bigger, expansive. It is feeding your wife who can't talk anymore, who can't return anything back, not because you're some amazing saint, but because you know what Jesus has done for you, and so it's your great joy to uh, engage in his very sufferings. And in our suffering, we must also consider Jesus, right? This is what the uh, writer of Hebrews has been saying over and over. Consider Jesus. We will never have a biblical and full understanding of love when we struggle if we don't consider Jesus, Jesus was perfect, and his father loved him with a perfect love. While on earth, God the Father said that he was well pleased with his beloved son. And yet Jesus was a man of sorrows, and he was acquainted with grief. He was misunderstood, and he was falsely accused. He was tempted, and he knew what it was to be hungry and to be cold. And this was the father's beloved son. And this destroys the idea that God's love means primarily that he wants us to have a comfortable life. The one whom he loved most suffered the most. We must consider Jesus and follow in his example. And this isn't in my manuscript, but I just got to say, this is why the prosperity gospel is such garbage. This is why good doctrine matters not just because they get the wrong answer, but because it's the exact opposite of what the Christian life is. It's the exact opposite. If your best life is now, that means you're going to hell because the Christian life, by definition, means your best life is to come. And the struggle that we endure now is preparing us for that. Jesus said he's endured for the joy that was set before him. And in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, Paul calls us to follow in his pattern by saying this, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The only way to be prepared for glory is through what Paul calls a light and momentary affliction, a guy who had been shipwrecked numerous times, a guy who had been persecuted from every possible angle, a guy who was sitting in prison most of his adult life, says, 
This light and momentary affliction, man, when you compare it, it's nothing. It's nothing compared to what I know is coming for me. So God disciplines us for our eternal good. He is child training us. And what he is producing in us is not a small thing. It's an incredibly precious and valuable thing. It cost Jesus Christ his life to purchase it. It's not a small thing. Get that. I need to get that when I struggle with sin. What's being produced in me is not a small thing. It cost Jesus his life. Throughout church history, certain verses in the book of Hebrews have been used by some as proof texts, which they say teach that you can lose your salvation. And last month, Chuck did a great job of dealing with one of those such texts. But in ours today, there's a few more verses that uh, I'd like to take a, a, an extended look at just for a moment um, and deal with some of these questions that may arise. Verses four through, 14 through 17 say, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The key to understanding this passage, just like the key to understanding all the Bible, is by interpreting the Bible with the Bible, to realizing that this is part of a longer narrative that's been happening. When we read it, in light of everything else the author has been saying, it becomes crystal clear that we struggle against sin not to earn salvation, but to prove it. Verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Verse 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The writer is using family language here. If you grew up with siblings, um, you may recall your parents uh, calling the dreaded family meeting because of an issue that they needed to deal with, right? And even if you were the issue that needed to be dealt with, do you know what wasn't on the table for discussion? Your eligibility into the family. That wasn't in question. It was a problem that needed to be addressed. But you're in the family. That's why you're in the family meeting, right? So the writer uses family language. But remember, he is writing to a larger audience, and there's bound to be tares among the wheat. So he says, matter-of-factly, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So pursue holiness, because when you pursue holiness, you're proving that you're in the family. The author has made it clear that our struggle against sin is not how you earn salvation. We know that Christ has already perfected anyone who's being sanctified. So if you're truly being sanctified, if you are really struggling against your sin, you're in the family. But if you're not, the writer says you should be concerned. Now, verse 17 has also been a source of no small controversy throughout church history. It says, for you know that afterwards, when he, uh, that is Esau, desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is not a man who had been humbled by his sin and was now turning to God in genuine repentance. This is a man who realized how great his loss was but who had become so cold and calloused that he could find no place of genuine repentance in his heart. 
he couldn't find repentance. He could recognize what he had lost, but this was not genuine. This is a sober warning. God will never turn away anyone who genuinely turns to Christ in faith and repentance. But it is possible to reject God's offer of free grace so continuously that though you may get to a place of recognizing your lostness, you are simply unable to find a place of repentance in your own hearts. This is a call to take hold of God's grace today because tomorrow is not promised to us. As the Holy Spirit said through the prophet Isaiah, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. He can be found today. If you are in the hearing of my voice today, the Lord can be found. So be of good cheer. This is not us. In the next section, the author continues pleading with us to grasp God's loving kindness by giving us what I will call a tale of two mounts. He speaks about the people of Israel's encounter with God in the Old Testament compared to how he interacts with us on this side of the cross. In essence, he shows us that we have gone from Mount Sinai, which represents the law, to Mount Zion, which represents the gospel of grace. In our day, the idea of God's holiness has been so utterly tamed that the language that the writer uses here can seem shocking. He uses language like a blazing fire and darkness and gloom, a tempest, a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. The truth is, as Christians, we always need to be reminded of the character of God. We always have a tendency to try and domesticate God because holiness is so traumatic. I do this all the time to try to justify my own sin. When I sin, my default is to try and downplay it because I hate God's holy standard when I sin and I don't remember the gospel. So rather than when I sin running to the gospel and remembering that Jesus has already paid for it, I try to downplay it. Something that Chuck said a couple weeks ago, I think he was quoting Chandler. It says, um, you can tell how much somebody gets the gospel by when they sin, whether they run to God or whether they run from God. I've actually used that functionally in my life several times, Chuck, so thanks for that. Um, and we even do this in the way that we uh, talk about sin, don't we? What do we call adultery? We call it having an affair. A ball is having an affair. Or I'll say something like, I need to make more time for God this week, rather than using Paul's language where he would say, actually, you've had evil desires, which is idolatry. In my flesh, I recoil at the thought of God's holiness because I can't stand before it. And the, and the writer of, to the Hebrews will not let us off the hook so easily. He never lets us off the hook, in case you haven't noticed. He says, in essence, behold your God in all of his blazing holiness. Know who your God is. And this is traumatic, and it's meant to be. But he doesn't stop there. No way. Not this lover of the gospel. He continues on and says, But behold your God in all of his beauty and grace. Come and join in the celebration of his glory. Look at the picture that he paints for us. He says, in essence, you have not come to the severity of Mount Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous made perfect. Don't you love the picture of innumerable angels and festal gatherings? You know what festal means? It means 
festive. It means festivities. In essence, in saying angels love to party, which is true. Angels love to party. Even Jesus tells this in uh, Luke 15, 7. He says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Please understand, heaven is the happiest place imaginable. I think we need to expand our vision of heaven as well. It's not a solemn place of duty. It is the happiest place on earth. I think I just probably did some copyright infringement there, but I think heaven takes precedence over Disney. It really is. Angels understand how wonderful a thing holiness is, and they rejoice when they see a sinner repent because they they understand reality. They have seen for eons the tragic effects of sin. So, of course, they celebrate when they see a sinner repent because they understand the picture. They understand that sin will lead to death. And they love it when sinners repent and join the party. Friends, do you know that holiness is happiness? Do you believe this? How a thousand lesser questions would be immediately answered if we truly believed that when God says he is committed to disciplining us for our holiness, he is saying in the same breath, he is committed to our eternal happiness. Of course, the writer of Hebrews would never miss an opportunity to lift up Jesus before us again. He says all of this, as we know, as he has said a thousand different ways, is only possible because of Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. God does not deal with us according to our sin, according to law. God now deals with us on this side of the cross with our faces set toward Mount Zion in light of the gospel in light of grace, in light of the righteousness of his beloved son. So I would say, along with the writer of the Hebrews here at the end as well, see that you do not refuse him. See that you don't refuse him. Today, if you hear his voice, see that you do not refuse him. If you have never trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking Free grace is offered to you. The gates of heaven are laid open to you this morning. Angels are waiting in the wings to celebrate with you this morning. And if you are battle, a battle-weary believer, and you're in a hard season, won't you find comfort in knowing that the Father cares deeply for you? He has not abandoned you. He is with you. Consider Jesus. Understand that Jesus will make holy everyone who he's already made holy. He will see to it that you actually become who you already are and see that you do not refuse him. And now as we transition to a time of response, and also as the writer of the Hebrews says at the end of this text, let us worship God with reverence in all that is due his name. Our worship is simply a response to the reality of who God is. Yes, our God is a consuming fire of holiness, but he is also an infinitely happy God of grace. And the reason that he is a consuming fire is because he is committed to happiness. He is committed to sin being totally eradicated. It is the most loving thing to absolutely hate sin when you know it will kill your beloved. And even today also, as we um, come to the table again, I encourage us all to take a moment and, and, and don't do it quickly but rather let's search our hearts, see if there be any unbelief in our own hearts. 
If you have never trusted in Christ or if you simply need prayer, there'll be people in the back as well who would love to talk with you, who would love to pray with you. But I encourage you, see that you do not refuse him this morning. Why don't you pray with me? Father in heaven, Father in heaven, we thank you for this um, strong, hard, yet soft word this morning. We thank you that you are a loving Father who child trains us for our good. And Lord, I pray that you would apply this word to our hearts this morning. I apply this word to, to tired hearts this morning, that they may be encouraged. Apply this word to hardened hearts this morning, that they may, may not be broken, but rather they would be softened. And we do lift up, Lord, before you all the struggles that are represented in this little chapel this morning. Oh, Lord, won't you come and be near us? Won't you shine your face upon us, Lord? that we can celebrate realizing that there are innumerable angels in festal gathering this morning. What a beautiful picture of the eternal felicity that heaven is. And won't we afresh fix our eyes on Jesus Christ this morning?